worth having those verses in front of you. Um, we're, we're in a teaching series at the moment through uh, various bits and pieces in the Gospel of John. And uh, it's really called Encounter, Encountering Encountering Jesus. And uh, it's, it's various people from different walks of life who uh, come and, and know Jesus and, and, and encounter him. And, and they all do it in very different ways. And so I, I think that's great. And that's why we're taking time as a church to work through these different encounters. Because if you stick with us long enough, you will find one of these just matches your situation very clearly indeed. And if you've missed the first few of these talks, you can go online and listen on our website or wherever you get your podcast from, um, and uh, you should be able to catch up. Anyway, um, what we've just read this morning is, is a story or a narrative that I think probably we could say you know, represents two prominent groups in, in Belfast, um, or maybe in whatever town, town you're from. Two prominent groups, um, they are this. On, on the one hand, we've got the, the ordinary person, who seems to be sort of vaguely spiritual in some ways, maybe a bit superstitious. Um, and perhaps on the other hand, then we've got those who are, uh, are um, what you would describe as religiously or maybe even politically fundamentalists. You know, they're sort of uh, fanatics, hard-headed, come across as perhaps a bit judgmental, a bit dismissive. There are other types of people, obviously. But for the purposes of today's talk, you know, they're two sort of major groups of people in our city. Uh, and, and yet both desperately need to have an encounter with Jesus in order to, to make any sense of life, in order for them to be transformed and to enjoy uh, life and peace and joy, and for our city also, likewise, to be transformed and enjoy life and peace and joy. And that happens when we encounter Jesus. So we'll see, uh, I suppose we'll be studying those two groups in today's talk. Uh, and the first thing we'll see, number one, is that Jesus transforms the needy. Jesus transforms the needy. The second thing we'll see is that Jesus unsettles the self-righteous or the religious. Jesus transforms the needy, first of all. And we have this scenario here in John chapter 8 with this man. We don't know his name, uh, but we are told twice in verse 3 and verse 5 that he is an invalid. That's the word that is used to describe him. Um, uh, and it says there, an invalid in verse 3, a multitude of invalids, people who are blind or lame or paralyzed, there's some sort of, most likely some sort of physical uh, disability that he has. Uh, we don't know what, what that is, but we do know that he's had it, it says, for 38 years. In verse 5, one man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. So whether he has been like this from birth, or whether something happened to him as a, uh, a younger man, um, a disease perhaps, or maybe he had some sort of accident or trauma, we don't know. But we find him there in this uh, encounter with Jesus, uh, with a, a whole bunch of other people in a similar situation, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Uh, and as such, in, in those days, if you were blind or paralyzed in some form or other, um, you wouldn't have any of the facilities and helps that you would have today. Uh, people today you know, who are blind, for example, are able to function uh, in, in ordinary society. Uh, there's lots of ways that, that they can be helped and, um, and so they can get on, get on well. In that day and age, that was not the case. So if you had any of these problems, uh, be they great or small, uh, you would be uneducated, uh, you would be unemployed, therefore you would be very poor, you'd be relying on the handouts from, from people as they go about their business and going to the temple and, and all this. And so we see this man who's been in this condition for at least 38 years, it says, and he's lying here at the what they call the Pool of Beth. 
Bethesda in, in verse 2. The pool of Bethesda. Now that's significant. Um, it says there's multiple people like him, and it says apparently they've all been congregating or gathering together. Maybe just sort of uh, that's, that's where people like that go. But, but there's another reason why they were all together in and around what, what was called uh, the, the colonnades, you know, these five colonnades, you know, sort of uh, porches or roofed areas. Um, why are they all there? Well, it tells us in verse 7, um, uh, for example, the, uh, we'll, we'll look at the interactions in a minute, but I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Um, they, they actually have discovered this, this pool that we're talking about here, the pool of Bethesda, and um, uh, some archaeology happened in, in Jerusalem, and, and they actually found it. They found the five sort of colonnades and all the rest of it, and they've actually found the pool of Bethesda and dug it up. And uh, it turns out that it was, it was a pool that was sort of connected with other uh, sort of higher water sources. Uh, Jerusalem is sort of built on a, on a hill, you know, little uh, hills here and there. And so uh, upper water would have supplied the pool of Bethesda, other, other uh, little tributaries as well, some smaller sort of fresh spring water would have also supplied uh, this big pool known as the pool of Bethesda. And occasionally, as a result of its construction and the fresh springs and all the rest of it, water would occasionally bubble up. You know, uh, a bit of air would sort of get trapped in the system, so to speak, and there would be like a, like a burp, you know, and up it comes, it erupts a bit. And it seems to be that over time, uh, sort of a superstition had, had developed, whereby when, when the water erupts or, or, or bubbles up like that, the first person in the water is the one who receives some sort of miraculous healing. Maybe, an, you know, uh, legend had it that an angel would stir it or something like that. And so once, if you're the first one in, you're the first one to get the blessing. You're the first one to receive some healing. And you can see why, therefore, it would have attracted many people who were infirm or invalids, um, as, as, as this put, puts it. Um, you've maybe heard of people traveling uh, to France, you know, Our Lady of Lourdes. It's a, it's a common, common spot, a pilgrimage site, and it's a place where uh, miracles have happened in the past. And, and yet it tra attracts thousands of people every year to go on pilgrimage, particularly those who are sick and infirm, hoping for a miracle, hoping to be that one to receive that blessing. And we see a similar thing here, people waiting, I suppose, as it were, for the power of God. And it says there in verse uh, 6, Jesus, it says, um, saw him lying there, and he knew that he'd been lying there a long time. Jesus saw him, right? And he knew something about this man. Um, and, and, and the way that it's structured is that he had some sort of divine you know, perception. Um, yes, and uh, he was able to know something significant about this man just by looking at him. He knew what this man needed. And so he asks uh, this individual who, whose name we don't know in verse 6, do you want to be healed? What, what a strange question to ask of someone who's been lying there day in day out for 38 years because it sounds obvious doesn't it that of course anyone in that situation would want to be healed do you want to be healed after all these years of suffering and struggling and attempts to get better and disappointments when things haven't worked out of course you'd want to get better but it seems to be that this man has been stuck in this place for so long that perhaps he's resigned to, th to thinking to himself, there is no use here. Um, this is my lot. This is what I've been given. I just have to put up with this for the rest of my days. 
His response in verse 7, I think, is very instructive. Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Do you want to be made well? He doesn't say, yes, I'll take anything, heal me. But he actually makes an excuse. Do you notice that? In fact, there's two excuses in his answer to Jesus. Firstly, he says, I have no one to put me into the water. In other words, he's saying, I can't help myself. I've got no strength or power. There's, there's nothing in me that, that can get me to where I need to be. I, 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 I'm powerless. And the second sort of half of the excuse, I suppose, number two, is that even when I'm trying, someone gets in there ahead of me. So not only do I have no power, but someone beats me to it. I'm not quick enough. I'm not savvy enough. I'm not clever enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm just not good enough. I've got no power. I've got no good in me. I can't help myself. And even if I had power, I wouldn't be good enough to make it anyway. And so it seems to be this man here, far from being hungry and ready for healing, I suppose, he's just resigned himself. And if anything, we can probably detect a bit of self-pity, which would be understandable, I suppose, in his position. But as we see at the beginning of this encounter, Jesus laid his eyes on the man. He saw him, and he knew him. He knew what was going on in his heart and in his thinking. Of course, he could see what was going on in his body. Everybody could see that. He knew what this man needed, he knew what he wanted, but he knew what he needed. And so he said to him in verse 8, after what seems like a very brief interaction, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. In verse 9 it tells us, at once he was healed. And he picked up his gear and was able to walk. No dialogue ensued, uh, no call to be just believe and have faith and then you'll be healed, none of that, just a word from God, it was, it was like a command of Jesus actually, get up, Jesus spoke a word and it happened and it happened instantly, it was instant restoration, it's instant healing, after 38 years of being in that condition, a word from Jesus and he was released. Yes, a response was required. We see that a bit later on um, in verse 14. Uh, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you, you're well, sin no more. Yeah. You, you have been healed. Now I, need you to, I want you to live in response to what I've done. You've, you've, you've received my power and my goodness in place of your lack of power and your lack of goodness. Now live for me. So, so there's the response. It's, it's, it's live because of what I've done for you. Live in accordance to what I've done for you. Now, that's how we know we've been transformed by, by Jesus, by his power and goodness. When we will uh, desire to live for him, our lives will be profoundly shaped and changed after a life-changing encounter with Jesus. We'll never be the same again. And I, think, I think in this man that we've been looking at just over the last few minutes, th there is a picture for at least some of us in this room 
I, I, we've, we've, we've thought probably at the start, it's represented a large group of people in our city, but perhaps for you it's even more personal than that. Um, it might be true on a purely physical plane, um, but, but certainly it might be true of you on a, or on a spiritual, even a mental sort of uh, level. I think this man can represent um, those of us who know, uh, at least at some level, Anyway, there is a gap in our, in our lives. There is a need that's been unmet. Um, there is a guilt that cannot be shifted. And, and like the man that we see here in, in, in John chapter 5, we're, we're, we're stood staring at the waters, hoping for something to get stirred up, looking for relief, looking for help, but being continually disappointed. That someone always gets in ahead of me. And so it goes round, and so it goes round, and so it goes round. And so we look for ways to help ourselves, perhaps, you know, uh, through superstition, as, as it seems to be in this scenario here. But ultimately, any ways that we look to help ourselves are powerless. Uh, maybe like this man here today, you, you realize that you, you cannot help yourself. You, you're powerless. You, you're not good enough anyway. And so whether it is like a, a superstitious hope, like a shot in the dark, or, or whether it's through religious practices or or through some other things that you're doing. You're, you're trying to help yourself. You're trying to make yourself feel well or feel better or get ahead. And, and, and time after time, year after year, those things have failed you. And perhaps you notice this increasing cynicism and hardness, resentfulness perhaps even growing, much like this man here. But if you in any way relate to this first character to you. This morning, Jesus says, rise, get up. He said, look at me, says Jesus. Stop looking down at the waters, hoping that one day they'll stir and you'll be in the right spot. Stop pinning your hopes on some vague thinking or vague thing working out. Jesus says, I will grant you life. I will give you healing. I will begin in you the process of restoration that will continue on and on until perfection, until completion. I will come to you in a life-altering, life-transforming relationship to you. Do you want to be healed? Then come to Jesus and receive life. Come and receive his power and his goodness for you. Jesus transforms the needy. And for you this morning, transformation begins when you trust that Jesus is what you need. Healing and restoration of the whole person is guaranteed by Jesus. Progress will be expected. Physical healing may even come instantly right now. It will come completely one day. Jesus transforms the needy. That's what he does. That's for you this morning. That's the first group of people, the first person that we see in this section. But there's a second section, and, and, and you know, we could sort of take the story that would finish at verse 9, and once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked... And that's where we'd end it, perhaps, if we were teaching this as a Sunday school thing to kids. 
But even that verse doesn't end there because it says now that day was the Sabbath. And we see the second group of people. Jesus unsettles the self-righteous. There's more to the story. That day was the Sabbath. Um, The second group or players, I suppose, in this story are seen in verse 10. The Jews. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. When, when the Apostle John, who wrote, wrote this gospel um, account, uses the term the Jews, he's not referring to all of the, the, the people of, 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 um, uh, of Israel, you know, the ethnic uh, nation, I suppose, the ethnic people. He's referring specifically, he uses the term specifically in his gospel um, account to refer to the Jews that are hostile to Jesus. Often uh, summed up and summarized by religious leaders or religious fundamentalists, such as the the hardline sort of Pharisee sect um, that we see cropping up time and again. But these are the, the his, his, this is John's understanding of the group of people that are hostile to Jesus and his message and his claims. That day was the Sabbath. Uh, that, that was a day of rest. It was commanded by law um, in, the, in the Ten Commandments that, you know, the, 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 the last day of the week, um, uh, the seventh day, was to be a day of rest. And it says that the Jews objected to this man picking up his mat and carrying it. Now, this idea of picking up somebody's mat and carrying that is not explicitly mentioned in the Bible. It's not mentioned in the law code. Um, But what it was was an extension. You know, if we are to to rest on the seventh day, the thinking goes, then here's 250 things that we cannot do. in order to to rest. We cannot do this, we cannot do that, we cannot cook in this way, um, we cannot pick up the bed. It's the tradition that developed around the the commandments. The tradition of the elders is called elsewhere. And so they take this man to task. And you you can start to see the problem in this group, can't you? Uh, They they have spectacularly missed the wood for the trees, as we would say. This man has just been healed miraculously and instantly and completely uh, after being disabled or whatever it was for 38 years, a remarkable, amazing show of divine strength, this stupendous thing. Just imagine the, the, the crowds going, going daft as, as word gets around. But their response was, you're carrying your mat on the Sabbath. That's just mad, isn't it? This... this, this it, it, this group are more concerned about their non-biblical religious traditions than this extraordinary manifestation of God's power through Jesus that day. I mean, how can they get this so wrong? So, so lopsided. And elsewhere in, in, in the Gospels, Jesus condemns this sort of behavior outright. Um, we can see here in Matthew 23... Verse 23, Jesus says, woe, it's placing a curse, you know. He's like, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. What he's saying is that you have been so focused on following these little tiny traditions and things that you think will please God, but you have missed the, the big picture, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And that's the same as what's going on, on here. They're hypocrites. 
So it's important to understand when, 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 when they are criticizing this man for picking up his bed on the Sabbath, it is not that they don't get it in their heads. It's not an intellectual problem. You know, it's not that these people can't see what's happened or understand what's happened. Of course they can. It's obvious. No one can deny it. There's been a remarkable healing and demonstration of God's power. We say, don't we, seeing is believing. But actually, when it comes to these types of people, that's rubbish because they can see all they want, but they do not believe. Seeing is not believing. It's total rubbish in this case. They can see just fine. They can understand just fine. The problem with this type of person and this group that we're examining is much deeper the reason why they focus on the mat and not the fact that this guy has just been rem remarkably healed is because they don't want to believe. Right? They don't want to acknowledge what's just happened right in front of their eyes. They choose to focus on the fact of the mat rather than the power of God in Jesus. For them, it is not an intellectual issue. They are not stupid. It is a deeper issue. It is a more profound issue. The Bible would say it's a heart issue. The very core of someone's being goes beyond the intellect. Why, why do you think that is? Why is it that some people would behave like this when they see the power and the, the goodness of Jesus so clearly? Why would anyone be like that? Well, the answer is because Jesus unsettles the self-righteous. Jesus is radically unsettling. To many people. Why is he unsettling? He's unsettling because you can't control his power and his goodness. He uses his power and his goodness flowing out of his heart as he wants, not as we want. And that's a wonderful thing if you receive it, but it's a terrible thing if you're trying to control it and coerce it and just sort of keep Jesus at arm's length and keep a lid on it. If you want to contain something of, 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 of Jesus and, and if, you want, if you want it to be nice and neat, then, then he's not your man. If, you, if your focus in life is, is, is keeping things neat, keeping the laws great and small, then, then, then if you do that and you live, live as such, that's absolutely fine. But you, you're doing that to sort of maintain a sense of control over your own life. That's, that's, that's why we do it. And, and you can use religion in a similar way, a sense of control, keeping various rules and laws and traditions. Just don't let things get too out of hand. You can manage it. And if the goal of your life is to keep God happy, by ticking as many boxes as possible and obeying as many laws as you possibly can, then you're working towards trying to keep things nice and steady, trying to contain God, right? Because if, if you understand God as only operating as and when you obey him, then you're keeping him, keeping him in your pocket, you're controlling him. You get to dictate your own path, right? You get to be the captain of your own destiny. And you can use religion to do that. It's amazing safe, isn't it, to be, to be like that, to, to, to look at the mat and forget, forget the power, forget the healing. And it avoids unsettling episodes in life, and you can become very good at it indeed. Religious people, church people are very good at, at, at that. But just observe what it does. 
if that's you. Look, look at the reaction to Jesus and his power. You know, we, we sing songs to this effect and we, we gather and we say, oh Lord, we want you to move. And, 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 and yet, some of us don't actually want that deeply. Look at, the, look at the reaction to Jesus and his power and his goodness and his transformation. It's too unsettling for these people. It's too out of control. They can't control it. They can't master it. And so they prefer the safety of focusing on the mat. And if, if that's you, or if, you, if that sort of represents some, something uh, of how, how you approach life, then, then you'll probably notice that, that it's quite easy to start looking down at other people. Sort of start sneering at them. Maybe not outwardly, but inwardly. Because they don't match up the way that you do. Um, I haven't picked up your mat today. I've picked up my mat. When, when, you, when you see God's power and goodness at work in other people, you're not full of praise and joy. You're saying, how great is our God? You focus and say, oh, you're, you're, you're breaking the law. You're doing this wrong. As religious people, I think we can sometimes forget. Um, we, we, we know that we can disobey God by, by sinning against him, by doing wrong things. We, we, we know that. But we forget that we can actually disobey God through doing the right things for the wrong reasons. We can actually disobey God by using our religion and, and our law-keeping. And the reason why we're disobeying him is because they're not coming from a heart that's being transformed by Jesus' power and his goodness. It's coming from a heart that's trying to control God. And so for them, religion is controlling God by putting him in debt to them. Jesus unsettles the self-righteous. They see grace lavishly being applied to other people. And they respond by fault-finding, nitpicking, extinguishing the flames of revival, crushing faith rising. As the apostle Paul puts it, quenching the spirit. That's what they do. So two groups of people actually encounter Jesus in this story. Let's, let's draw things uh, together and let's try and apply them a little bit then because we, we, we don't know where the healed man ended up. We don't know what, ended, what way he lived his life after that. Neither do we know the response of the religious people who picked him up for picking up his mat. But one thing we can say for sure is that Jesus always provokes a reaction. Um, kind of like Marmite, I suppose, without sounding uh, hopefully disrespectful. You either love him or you hate him. Um, uh, you, you, are, you, either, you either are attracted by Jesus and want to move further and closer to him, or you are repelled by Jesus and you do your best to insulate your, yourself from him and move away from him. Either one or the other. If there is no reaction to Jesus, that's because you either haven't heard about him or you haven't really thought it through. You're just sort of trying to remain numb. But the truth is, I, I think... Um, there's probably an element of both of these types of people within us, the needy and the self-righteous. And often we'll veer to one way or the other. We'll try and either dig ourselves out and center our lives on some empty hope, or we'll go all religious in an effort to get God to do what we want him to do. We miss the wood for the trees. But the good news 
that I'm here to tell you about this morning is that Jesus sees you and Jesus knows you. And through the gospel, through the good news, he is for you. He offers you his grace. He offers you his power, his goodness, his acceptance, his forgiveness. He comes to turn the unlovely into the lovely. He comes to take the mess and create beauty. He lifts up the lowly and he humbles the proud. And both will find life and peace in Jesus. Through his death on the cross, we have life. And when he rose on the third day, he rose to eternal life to give and share that life with us. His forgiveness to us, rest to our souls, healing to our entire being. And he offers that real life change beginning today, continuing on forever through faith in his name, through faith in who he is, what he's done. Let's separate things out as we try and get real specific here. Maybe number one out of two, maybe number one, you need to take steps of faith this morning. Maybe you need to stop looking down into the waters, waiting for them to be stirred, hoping that one day it's your day. You need to stop that and start this morning looking up to Jesus to achieve all that you could ever need and more. That means trusting that Jesus can save you, but trusting that he wants to save you and that he has saved you. He is able to do all of that, not you. Sometimes we need to come to the end of ourselves to realize that. He is able, not us, and that is good news. Maybe that's you this morning. Take a step of faith. Come to Christ. Second way, you may be affected by this teaching. Perhaps you're coming from the other perspective, that of the, the religious person. Um, particularly as we see them in this text today. You like the idea of God's power and goodness. You may even benefit from it personally, but you're uncomfortable where it could all end up. It's all too messy for you. It's too unpredictable. It's just improper. And so you withdraw yourself. You restrict yourself. You create a system of laws for you to hide behind. Let me say clearly, the reality of life together, life with God, it is messy, but it is good. He will challenge your comfort. He will make you feel awkward. He will, at times, even feel dangerous to you. Wild, maybe, like fire. But if that's you, you must know that the same power and goodness that saves a mess like you is the same power and goodness that saves everyone no matter how messy their lives may appear in your eyes. 
let's finish with um, what I would call a, a vision test. Um, and, I, I, and I mean the vision, I suppose, of your imagination. We're not going to test your eyes to see if you're short-sighted or long-sighted. A vision test. Imagine with me for a moment a church, maybe like this one here, filled with people who are described in verse 3. A multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Imagine a church full of people like that, chronically unemployed. The poor, the destitute, people with a past, people who are stuck, people who have no one to help, people who have no place to go. But people who have had an encounter with Jesus, they have experienced something of his power and goodness. Imagine a church full of people like that. But then imagine mixed in with those people who have experienced the power and goodness of Jesus. Imagine mixed in with them, also people who were formerly religious sort of fundamentalists. They used to be judgy, hard-hearted, mean-spirited people. And they too have had an encounter with the goodness and power of Jesus, with Jesus himself. And now there they are, in church, with these big transformed hearts and open wallets and open homes, all of them, both of these groups, doing life together, helping one another, all individually and as a group reflecting uh, the glory of God and Jesus and what he's done and celebrating him. Imagine a church like that. It'll be a bit bonkers. It'll be a bit messy. But it'll be amazing. It'll be glorious. As you imagine that vision, and we do this vision test, if you're saying to yourself, yes, yes, that's the sort of church I want to be part of. That's what I want to see. If that's your response to that vision test, then you're starting to understand and, and marvel at what God has done for you in Jesus. And you want to see that more. And you want to see other people experience that more. If you say yes, that's what's going on in your life right now. That's what he's doing in your heart. But if you think of that vision test and you think, oh no, that sounds awful. That's the sort of church I would not like to be a part of. I like church just to be nice and still and respectful. If you sort of shrink away, then may I say clearly and with respect, you haven't understood Jesus. You haven't understood the gospel. You haven't understood his goodness, his power. That's what he does. May God help us to understand and receive more of Jesus and what he has for us today. Amen. Let's pray.